Well, good morning, everybody. This is Granny D, Dorcas Smith out of Plymouth, Michigan. Happy to be with you again for the TR90 Body Burn 30 call. Very exciting concepts again today. I'm so happy to be here with you. I'm talking from or reading from Go Wild by John Rahey, MD, and Richard Manning. And again, I love his little byline. Eat fat, run free, be social, and follow evolutions of the rules for total health and well-being. What an interesting bunch we are when it comes to our health. I do think that um, everything we do with our TR90 program is right on target. And certainly, again, I will say that thanks to this program, I am the healthiest that I have been in 20 years. I can run up and down stairs. I can do things that going on 70, I don't think are typical. But if you keep moving and you keep think, keeping that concept of exercise and awesome food and amazing supplements and things like use, it's, it's phenomenal what the quality of your life can be. So thank you, New Skin. Today, the comment or the area I'm going to look at is the core human trait. We deliberately entered this broader discussion of tribalism in our last week's discussion and violence through oxytocin because childbirth, nurturing, and bonding lie at the center of the human experience. Earlier in this book, Rahe outlined the broad markers of human evolution and introduce this key point. Now it is time to revisit it in this new context. We need only to consider the cartoon image of cavemen in modern imagination to begin to understand our long blinkered perception of the nature of our ancestors. In the cartoons, the caveman always carries a club. This is nothing more than an extension of the Hobbesan H-O-B-B-E-S-I-N-I-A-N notion of nastiness, meanness, brutishness, etc. Yet, the notion is not limited to cartoons. Throughout paleontology, there has been a persistent strain of imagining our species development, develop, our species development as governed by violence. Much of this has been rooted in the study of bones, skeletal remains that show signs of breaks and stabs and beatings. And so people reading these bones from time to time interpreted this as a sign of constant warfare. Really? Maybe there's another view. At the same time, our closest living relatives, even the comparably peaceful Bonobo, B-O-N-O-B-O, and especially chimpanzees, show, that, show plenty of ability when it comes to violence, even warfare. And so this too is part of the state of the nature. Further, we have seen it emerge in the inquiries of people like Car Carrier, who began by looking at our body's adaption for running, but wound up concluding that we are equally adapted for and well-suited to punching and throwing spears. Truly, violence is in our bones and muscle. This conclusion will not go away. Evident also 
in the headlines of the day, the confirmation of hatred and carnage in our times and in all times. Indeed, the evolutionary psychologist Steven Pinker, P-I-N-K-E-R, has argued that we in fact live in a relatively peaceful time and that the record shows that the past has been characterized by stunning degrees of aggression towards one another, far worse than today. He argues that a decline in violence is a benefit to civilization and that slowly humanity is learning to put this aside. We can only hope. Yet there are some lessons from evolution that may help us think about this most vexing of human dilemmas. Pinker's argument is data-based, and he argues that it holds through of all through all of human history. Yet there is a good reason to make the distinction that we have throughout this book, that the best evidence for our violent past comes from the past 10,000 years, a time when territory and ownership of land became vital, when farms supported cities, when monarchs could raise armies, and when we developed the tools for mass warfare. Much of, much of the case that the hunter-gatherers spent a great deal of time and energy killing one another is circumstantial at best. For instance, one analysis of the bumps and breaks on ancient skeletons, evidence earlier interpreted as resulting from warfare, got another look from researchers who found a close modern analog to skeletons in this condition. And these were not the skeletons of warriors. The closest match to injuries like these in modern times were in rodeo cowboys, people who mix it up with big, unruly animals for sport. It may help to be a bit more precise in the definitions here. First, we would agree that hunting is not violence. It is killing. True enough. There will be blood. But the brain of the hunter is in a very different mode than the brain of a murderer or warrior. This is pretty clear-cut and demonstrable in measurable phenomena like brain waves. The hunter generally faces no threat that triggers a response of terror or aggression. Just the opposite, as we have seen on many levels. The hunter is engaged, even empathetic, even though every bit of knowledge we have of hunting peoples, from the cave paintings in South France to the rituals of plains bison hunters, comes evidence that these people regarded their prey with great respect and awe. Well, how can you not have great respect and awe for a bison? Heavens to Betsy, or another, any other large animal that you would be hunting to feed your family. I love the fact that people regarded their prey with respect and awe as I think we should now. Beyond, there seems to be a good case for separating our defensive violence against predators 
Beating off lions and bears is not what we think about today when we discuss violence. Yet fighting off predators probably was the form of fighting we knew best in evolutionary times. The threat of predation shaped us, and it had to, particularly the threat to our helpless infants. When we speak of violence as adaptive in evolutionary terms, it is, this is the best example. This is why aggression is the flip side of the bonding powers of oxytocin. It is adaptive, not only in cooperative and bond with our... It is, okay, it is adaptive to not only cooperate and bond with our fellows, but to protect and defend. Yet none of this gets at aggression against other humans, and it should. Why does aggression persist beyond reasons for it? Why are we so riven with senseless killing and warfare? Is this simply who we are, as Pinker argues? And does this require the cultural evolution of civilization to gradually wear it away, wall it off into, into a silent corner of our gene pool? Part of our thinking about human evolution has missed a great deal because we see what we want to see, and the caveman with the club is something of an icon with this regard. With this regard. We are indeed fascinated by broken bones, spear points, and stacks of mutilated skeletons, yet much has, this, yet much has been gained in re-examining the evidence from a different perspective. Put another way, the history of trying to understand human evolution has been beset with all sorts of debates about what defined us, what came first, and what is most important, big brain, opposable thumbs, and the use of tools, fire, fishing. In all of this, there is an obvious bias towards things men do. Yet, one of the most thoughtful and interesting students of human evolution, the anthropologist Sarah Blaffer, B-L-A-F-F-E-R, Hardy, H-R-D-Y, Sarah Blaffer Hardy, has told us much by re-examining the evidence in light of things women do. In terms of evolution, her approach represents far more than correcting of a gender bias. In evolutionary terms, success of a species is completely dependent upon reproduction, whether it goes on, whether it feels a set of genes for the next generation. As we have said, homo sapiens are unique in all the animal world, completely without precedent in one regard. No other species must spend as much time and energy rearing and protecting infants as we do. To Hardy, this is the defining fact of our existence. And the term she uses is cooperative breeding. That is, we come together as a species to raise children. What I want to stress here, he says, however, is that the cooperative breeding was the pre-existing condition. That's Sarah Hardy's emphasis. Let me say it again. 
what she wanted to stress here is that the cooperative breeding was the pre-existing condition, and she's put it in, in italics, that permitted the evolution of these traits in the hominin line. Creatures may not need big brains to evolve cooperative breeding, but hominins needed share, care, and provisioning to evolve big brains. Cooperative breeding had to come first. Sarah Hardy is saying our cooperation and ability to bond to one another is primal, foundational, and the bedrock. In her book, Mothers and Others, Listen again, it's Sarah Blaffer Hardy, and her book is Mothers and Others. She hits the, ex the essence of the idea. Brains require care more than caring requires brains. Still, the persistence of violence seems to contradict the, the importance of bonding. But then humans are nothing if not contradictions. And this contradiction teases out an even more basic issue of evolution, the one that today's evolutionary biologists in these pages, hold on, sorry, I skipped the page, the one that today's evolutionary biologists debate at great length, but which has in recent years produced all sorts of insights into the forces that drive us. Much of evolutionary thought has rested on discussions of individual fitness, with an individual being a discrete unit of genes and therefore the only unit which evolution can act. The, sorry, let me trade that again. Much of evolutionary thought has rested on discussions of individual fitness, with an individual being a discrete unit of genes and therefore the only unit on which evolution can act. Yet, as studies of social animals, ants, termites, prairie voles, and humans came to fore, it occurred to thinkers that there was, there was such a thing as group fitness. Think about that, group fitness. That is, the degree to which we were able to successfully cooperate and cohere as groups yielded clear advantages to our survival. This raised the idea of group rather than individual selection, a notion still hotly debated. And whether we know it or not, it is still hotly debated every day and every second in each of our brains. That is because it is sometimes to our advantage to do what is good for us as individuals and other times to do what is best for the group. Selfish behavior versus altruistic behavior. Hmm, both confer advantages in evolutionary terms, and we are wired to heed both sets of messages. So, humans are contradictions. It is best at this point to return to the evolutionary biologist, O. E. Wilson. He says, the human condition is endemic, sorry, the human condition is an endemic turmoil rooted in the evolution process that created us. The worst in our nature coexists with the best, and so it will ever be. To scrub it out, if, it, if such were possible, would make us less than human.
Very interesting. So we have a turmoil. The individual versus the group. Yet, it is because of the group that we survive. Therefore, we must look after the group. Fascinating. In the meantime, I have gone past time as ever. I get excited about this, but I wanted to finish the ideas. Next time, we'll be working, I'll be looking at central nerves, how the body wires together health and happiness. But just remember, we have a huge group history, and it's really interesting to think what is happening today in our lives. Fascinating. I don't have the answers, but it sure is interesting. All right, let's take us back to group. <laughs> 